We began our series uh, here last week. If you weren't here last week, uh, you, you missed a lot, but you only missed three verses, okay? So let me just remind you uh, what we talked about last Sunday. Uh, there's a prophet of God named Jonah. This is one of those books that I think we all feel familiar with, but once we get into the details, there, there's, there's a lot there that we, we forget about or just don't, don't get why, why it's there. Uh, the word of the Lord came to him with a direct call to go to Nineveh. Now, we learned about the nature of the Ninevites uh, last week, that uh, incredible wall that they uh, built around the city, and uh, I had given you the dimensions last week, but just uh, somebody helped me this week with what it would look like if you're more spatial, more visual in that way. Uh, the, the walls would be like as wide as our church, but three times the height of this ceiling, huge. Uh, walls around the city of Nineveh. And then they, they had ramparts on them uh, that would be six times the height of uh, this ceiling. Uh, that's a big wall they had around them. Especially, though, we learned about uh, the cruelty of the, the Ninevites. They were as I said last week, they were the ISIS of that day, even down to the location of Nineveh, which would be right by Mosul, which is, as we speak, the, really the headquarters of ISIS. Uh, a number of folks, as I've uh, explained about their, their cruelty and so on, remarked to me uh, that they were surprised at the parallels historically between Nineveh and ISIS. Uh, Jonah's reaction, he had this very clear, clear very uh, simple, in terms of it wasn't an elaborate call, but his reaction to that call to go and and preach them uh, the gospel was to go as far the other direction as he could imagine. Now remember our map. We have where the, the flowers are. That would be where Jonah was. And then up, the, say the top pipe up there would be where he was called to, 600 miles away, to Nineveh. And so... He went to the, oh, look, there's nobody in Tarshish today. Uh, I suspected that. I pointed to the last row up there last week and, and said that's where Tarshish would be. And, you know, the ones sitting there um, were shocked by that. But, but it was four times as far away where he chose to go. Now we'll see. He didn't really get all that far, but that's where he wanted to go anyway. 
And then we fast-forwarded to the end of the book because we were coping with the, <coughs> the question, well, why, why did he do that, prophet of God? Was he scared? Was he intimidated? And so that's why we fast-forwarded to the end of the book, give you a spoiler a little bit, but you can read the end of the book anyway, and saw that he explains why he went the other way. In Jonah 3, verse 10, we see, we see that just what he was supposed to do, he finally ended up going to Nineveh, he preached, they repented, and then it says, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said uh, he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse uh, and then chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now we're going to get back to that. But let's pick up with the account. And we're going to pick up with uh, verse 4. Right after his call, right after he decided to flee to Tarshish. And here's how we need to look at this is um, not necessarily this exact thing. But this is what can happen when we're running from God. So we read, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back uh, to dry land so that they 
but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, I can't look out over this congregation and and see who's running from you. They're, they're all here in this room. But how many of us either are or have or are contemplating doing just that? Lord, we're here for a reason. This, this account was recorded for a reason. And so will you use your word in all of our hearts, even those who may think I would never run from the Lord, will you strip away maybe walls that we've put up there to where we can't even see ourselves and reveal us? And then, Lord, will you work today? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, we're going to approach this passage a little bit differently. It's a narrative. We're going to kind of just go through verse by verse. So uh, have your Bibles there where you can see them and catch the next verse. We're going to pick up again with verse 4 where we read. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the, the ship threatened to break up. Now, it doesn't say how far they got. So it, that's up for speculation. Uh, it, you know, it's the next sentence. Uh, they, they were in danger, though. We do see later on that they, they're trying to row back in. So evidently they uh, could either still see land or they you know, had been pushed where they could see the land at that point. But we just don't know how far they got. But it says the Lord hurled a great wind. Over in Proverbs 30, verse 4, it talks about the one who gathered the wind in his fists. Isn't that, isn't that a, a, a amazing uh, description? And, you know, we see uh, uh, in this case and later when we see the fish, I think it's interesting because the wind and the fish are both more obedient to God than his prophet. And so it says he hurled and literally, so if you can, picture, this is the picture, is to, like picking up a ball and flinging it. So that's how sudden 
this, this came on and boom, all of a sudden they're in the middle of this. And it was such a bad storm that they thought there's a really good chance that our ship is going to, to break up and we'll, we'll see evidence that they really thought uh, that was going to be uh, the case. Now they try to remedy uh, the, the problem. Verse 5, it says, uh, Then the ma- uh, mariners were afraid. Uh, I, I recall being on an airplane, flying, I don't remember where I was going at the time, but we hit, hit some turbulence, and it was what I would call uncommon turbulence. You know, it wasn't just the, where it goes, boop, you know, sit down and, you know, fasten your seatbelt every few minutes, that kind of a thing. It was that where I was, you know, kind of checking where's that bag that, uh, you know, is uh, here in, in front. And, uh, but right literally across from me were uh, two pilots that were, like, you know, going back to their destination, and they were in uniform. And here we're going through this, and some people, were, you know, you'd hear when we'd, we'd drop or whatever, you'd hear a gasp, and I looked over at them, and they were laughing and, and smiling, you know, when that would happen. So I was okay, actually. Now, had I looked over there, and they had been like some of the passengers, you know, like gripping and, and you know, uh, checking what were those instructions she gave us earlier, and where's that thing that comes down, and you know, that would have concerned me. But here were guys that had been through that probably hundreds of times. They knew that we weren't really in any danger. Um, so, but here's what we have on the ship. You have these experienced mariners, and they think this is the kind of storm that could be the end of us. And uh, so, you know, they were even fearful. Uh, so much so, they cried out to his God, their God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. Now, you might say, well, you know, that's not that big a deal. They never would have done that had they thought that they could keep afloat without that. Because that was the whole reason for going to, uh, you know, to, for sailing was whatever cargo was in there. That was their livelihood. And so by them throwing it over, they didn't have any, any reason to finish their trip. They, they probably, we don't have any record, but they probably just turned around and went back because there's no reason to, to go on. And so they, they were losing you know, their, their whole livelihood but trying to save their lives. So that's what was going on uh, here. Now, notice it says each cried out to his God. Uh, We don't know, you know, what their religions were or whatever. This is, it appears to be at least what I would call uh, a temporal faith. Temporal meaning having to do with time, but also temporary. Because here you got guys that usually if they, you know, sailors, you know, we, look, this is a caricature, okay? 
but sailors and uh, speaking of God, it's not necessarily asking for help. But that's what's going on here. And so when we call it a temporal faith, it's because they thought they were going to die. And a temporal faith is going to be, then you, you have faith, you ask God for help, and then you get help, and the faith goes away. So, you know, we sometimes see that when people are in a difficult period of time or, or something like that. And, and it appears this might have been a, you know, it could have been some kind of a, a temporal faith. So after crying out to their gods or maybe during, they're throwing the cargo overboard. It says, but Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast uh, asleep. Why did Jonah fall asleep? And this, if you read the commentaries on this, they are all over the board in terms of why. And, and ultimately, we don't, we don't know. Um, but because we don't know, that gives me the freedom to give you a theory. <laughs> okay? <laughs> but I want to tell you, there, you know, it just doesn't say why he was asleep. Some say he was relieved that he'd made this difficult decision. Uh, some actually say because he was still resting in the Lord and wasn't worried about that. I think that's unlikely, but uh, that's what some say. Some say he was tired from his trip to Joppa, which was where they, the port where they left. And, but the Scripture doesn't say. My theory is this, that he was grieving and guilty and depressed. Grieving and guilty and depressed. All of which worked with his physical tiredness. And in spite of a ship being tossed in the waves, he fell asleep. Look at, uh, go on with, to verse 6, because what we see is uh, the, the captain's reaction. Verse, so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a, a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, here's the captain. You know, I'm sure he had, you know, all hands were already on deck. They were doing what they were supposed to do. And he either heard or, or you know, or saw that there was uh, somebody uh, down in the hold sleeping. And, you know, evidently, from what he says, he's thinking, you know, there may be another God out there that hadn't been prayed to. Let's, let's try this one. Boy, was he right. He was exactly right. He had no idea how right he was. It, it's interesting on, on this passage in the Septuagint, which is the, uh, the Old Testament's uh, written in Hebrew, but there's a Greek translation of, uh, of that uh, Old Testament. And uh, there's a note in uh, that translation that suggests that the captain may have found Jonah because he was snoring. Now, I get that for me. I get that, and Connie gets that because she says it's only seconds after my head hit the pillow that, you know, things let, let loose. 
in terms of the snoring, but uh, he was really asleep. Let's at least say that. Um, this Gentile captain would have no idea about the one who seven and a half centuries later would be sleeping in a boat during a storm. But, but who would be so different that who would then stand up and he would say, peace be still. And the storm would listen to him. Now he was, he was about to experience that one, but he wouldn't have known at this point. In, in verse 2 of this passage, Jonah is told, look at the parallels here. Jonah is told, arise and call out against Nineveh. Verse 6, the captain says to Jonah, arise and call out to your God. Those words must have just been haunting him. <laughs> Evidently, I've, I'm going to have to arise and call out. And so look what happens, verse 7 then. They said to one another, come, let's cast lots that we may uh, know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, casting lots would be the way people would, uh, in that day, we see it a lot in, in the Old Testament, would have tried to hear from God. They felt by doing that, there was lots of ways of doing it. Some it was throwing a stick. Some it was like something like a dice game or, you know, choosing sticks, various things like that. Uh, which we would call like a, uh, some kind of a game of chance. But their belief, and, and we see God using it uh, from time to time, would be this is how God would show himself. Now, in terms of, from a Christian perspective, uh, the last time we see that in the Scripture was in Acts chapter 1 when they chose Matthias, to replace Judas as a disciple. And that's the last time we see that. So what changed after that? The very next chapter, the Holy Spirit comes. And so we don't see any, anyone else casting lots. Maybe they did, but there's no record of it. And why not? How do we know God's will? Well, it's God's Spirit attesting to us, using His Word, and so on. So we don't ever see that again. Uh, so I don't suggest you use lots or lotteries to seek God's will. But it does show that he can use anything he wants to reveal himself. Now look in verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Then they start asking questions. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What, what's your country? And to, to, of what people are you? So they ask a bunch of questions. Here we are right in the middle of the storm, but they're doing everything they can think of to, uh, to, to, to address the issue here. His answer, verse 9, he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
Now, in that statement, he answers the questions. Well, most of them. He, he's, he would have been a good debater, huh? He answers most of the questions, but he doesn't answer the question, what's your occupation? A few days before this, if someone had said, what is your occupation? He would have said, I am a prophet of God. He wouldn't say that here. Jonah had lost himself. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Evidently, he had added that in somehow. That I, it's not recorded here, but it says that he told them. And, you know, they're saying, What are you, what are you thinking if he's, he is a, a god? And so what we have here is pagan sailors with more fear of God than Jonah had at this point. Then they said to him, verse 11, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. They had come to the conclusion, they were right, that their, their safety depended on, on Jonah. Here is somebody fleeing from this big God. Evidently, he's the one. What do we do? And so Jonah, I put in your outline in guilt and resignation. That's, that's how I see it. You can read it with a lot of different tones of voice. But he said, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Then it'll quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. That's why I think he was, you know, so depressed. We see how guilty he is? He knew. He knew down deep. Remember last week we, he, he talked about going to Tarshish, which is fleeing from the presence of God. Down deep he knew you can't flee from the presence of God. Throw me into the sea. Now, how different was that than one who stood on a boat 700 years later, the Apostle Paul, and said, declared to those in a, a similar storm, not a hair on your head is going to, to be touched. We're all going to be safe. And then he praised God. He must have known in his mind, Jonah, in his desperation, in his despair. There's only thing, one, one thing I can do. I'm not going to escape from God's presence. God has no more use for me now. But I'd rather die than preach to the Ninevites. So he's... He's committing suicide, just using them to do it. Can a believer really get to that point? Every uh, semester in our grief recovery ministry on Wednesday night, uh, I go in and, and speak to them one, 
uh, one of the sessions, uh, one of the early sessions, and I give them an opportunity for questions. This is one of those questions that comes up. And so now I just uh, address it outright. That question, can one be a believer if he commits suicide? Now, I spend some time on it because it's an important question. But the bottom line is, uh, it's not God's way. It is usurping something that only He has the right to uh, determine, which is the length of our lives. That's part of sanctity of human life. Is He's the only one that can determine the beginning and the end of our life. But even a believer can get to the point when depression or hopelessness so overtakes their mind that they may wrongly think that it's the best thing to do. You know, earlier we, we sang uh, the hymn, God Works and uh, Moves in a Mysterious Way, by Cooper, William Cooper. He was at that point many times in his life. That's, that's his story. There were times... He couldn't even move. He couldn't even function. Go back and read the words of that at some point. You see someone who has been there, has been torn, and has been in that kind of a despair. Yesterday in Georgia, uh, um, a man who I had done, he and his wife's wedding, a man who had gone to the mission field with his wife and two children who we had visited over in England, been in their home over there. His funeral was yesterday because he took his own life over Christmas. Can you get to that point? Yes. It's not the right way. It's never the right way. But it's also like other sin. The cross was enough. And that's our hope in Jesus Christ. It should never be the choice of a believer, but even in that, God's grace is sufficient to cover that darkness. Now, we're going to see, however, that in this case, God prevents Jonah from ending his life (laughs) in in the most miraculous way. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish, for this man's life Uh, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Basically, the sailors tried everything. Uh, I, think, I think what's amazing here is you've got these pagan sailors, and they're, they're trying to save their lives, but they're, they, you know, they could have gone ahead and thrown him in at that point. They're still trying to save Jonah's life. 
they've got more concern for him than he had certainly for the Ninevites. And so we see them continuing to try to get out of this. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. I'm going to give you uh, three applications here. Part of it, we're going to look at verse 16 too. But, but here's, here, we're basically going to stop with him going into the sea. Uh, this is a cliffhanger, I know. You may read ahead if you just can't stand it. The, fir- the first application here is do not take circumstances as signs of God's guidance when you've ignored God's word. Now, one has to wonder when Jonah got to Joppa, Maybe he thought, this is perfect, a ship to Tarshish. Maybe God will even use me there. This must be God's guidance after all, maybe he thought. But when we've ignored God's clear guidance, we mustn't look at circumstances and make make that how we choose what we will do. Too often, people on the path of disobedience, when they're headed towards something, will let circumstances and experience guide them. I have too often uh, heard people, when presented clear biblical guidance, I, I, right in my office, I, you know, show them the Word of God and had people say, but God wouldn't want me unhappy. Or, but I'm at peace about my decision. I wonder what Jonah might have said as he went to sleep. Maybe he was at peace about his decision. Sometimes circumstances that would seem to give us the opportunity to sin are put there by our Heavenly Father to prove or test our faith. Not so we can have an easier path towards sin. Circumstances are okay as secondary help, but not when they contradict God's explicit word. So here Jonah had God's explicit word. No circumstance should have been taken over that. Secondly, note that God will accomplish his plan and bring himself glory with or without our compliance. (laughs) God works in spite of Jonah's disobedience. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. When we met these men, They were crying out to their gods. And here we see them offering sacrifice and making vows apparently to serve God. Now, different commentators have different views on this also. But I want you to note something, because you might say, well, that was just a temporal faith like you were talking about earlier. If this had been in the middle of the storm and they, they had 
you know, offered vows to God, might have said, yeah, let's watch them after the storm. But this was after the storm. They could have gone, okay, let's go back home. But instead, I think it's evidence that God was doing his thing. So here we see Jonah running from the Ninevites. And on the way there, God saving people. In spite, in spite of Jonah. And God showing once and for all, my will will be done. You know, the Westminster Confession uh, of Faith, uh, in talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, is talking about its effectiveness. And there's, for me, a very comforting section in here. It says the efficacy of a sacrament, in other words, the effectiveness of the sacrament, does not depend on the piety or intention of him that administers it, but upon the work of the Spirit. Now, I know that's hard to just grasp. What it's saying is this, that the effectiveness of uh, the Lord's Supper or baptism, if I baptize somebody, it doesn't depend on how good I am, how pious I am. This is about God. And so he can use weak, imperfect vessels. He can use crooked sticks to draw that straight line. And that's, that's what he does here. God will accomplish his purposes. The only difference is this. If we're disobedient, it won't keep anyone out of heaven. But we're going to miss the blessing of being used by God. If we're obedient, we may have that joy. The, the third application here. There's nowhere in the universe we can hide from God. That's the most obvious one. Martin Luther wrote this. Uh, not only the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah. He finds no nook or corner in all of creation, not even in hell, where he might crawl in. But he must needs expose himself to the gaze of all creatures and stand before them in his ignominy. It's okay, I looked that up. It, it means humiliation or disgrace. There's no place to hide. You can't hide in Tarshish, not in the hold of the ship. He's going to find out not even in the ocean, not in death. And that's important for us to know. There's nowhere we can escape the presence of the Lord. If you are running from God, that's not good news. That's a bad thing. But if you need comfort from God, the fact that there is nowhere you can go that He isn't, there is nowhere you can go that He isn't, that's a good thing. Let's bow together.
Lord, will you bring us comfort from that? And will you draw us nearer to you? That's ultimately what we need. If we've been running, Lord, help us to know that's useless. That is absolutely useless. Because you, you not only will find us, you're already there. And so, Lord, will you hem us in, but hem us into your wonderful grace and loving arms, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.